Ryan. Happy Pride Month. Happy Pride Month, Jagisha. So we have some exciting guests on this week's podcast episode. Yes, and Jagisha and I are celebrating in style. Stephen Brawley of the St. Louis LGBT History Project. And he's going to be here to talk about his recommendations along with Jagisha and I. So that'll be a fun recommend segment. And who else do we have joining us this week, Jagisha? And we have Dr. Eric Cervini. He is the author of The Deviance War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. A very enlightening and excellent text. I can't wait to talk to this gentleman. He's written an eye-opening, illuminating book about Frank Kamini. So you're going to learn about one of the grandfathers of the gay civil rights movement. So happy Pride Month, Kirkwood. It's all in store yet to come. We are so excited that we are joined by a special guest for her to make some recommendations with us. Stephen Brawley is here. He is the man behind the St. Louis LGBT History Project, and he is going to share some fantastic recommendations and, and listen to our recommendations as well. Stephen, thank you so much for joining us. Great. I'm excited to be back with the library. I was there last fall for a presentation, and I love my partnership with you all, and so I'm looking forward to today's discussion. So um, I'm ready to recommend. Fantastic. Well, and then if it's not too much to ask, why don't you kick this off? Great. Well, I'm going to start with the oldest recommendation that I have, which is a book from early 1900s, and it's The Story of a Life with a pseudonym author. Um, the name is Claude Hartland. We don't know the author's real name because the book was written um, under the pseudonym. And so it's, as far as we know, the first autobiography of a gay man in America. And it was written sort of as a medical story because the young man that who penned the book was from rural Missouri, came to St. Louis and sort of explored his sexuality here and moved away. But his, his issue was, which is shocking to even say, is that he thought what he was he was so he was inflicted with this horrible disease which would have been you know being gay and so he wanted to write a book so he could be studied and so that his illness could maybe someday be evaluated or cured and so he really wrote this as a medical story but it's the story of his life and his time here in St. Louis and um, some relationships he had some getting beat up um, some scary things so this is a great short read but it, I mean you can get it hard to find. You, you can find it. I think a lot, some libraries do have it. I'm not sure if it's on your shelves or not, but maybe it's something you can investigate. So, but yeah, this is a good book as a real way to start looking at local history here in St. Louis because it's our first um, documented um, work that we have on file. So strongly recommend this one. That so, sounds most interesting. And, and not only if the Kirkwood Public Library doesn't have it, it's very likely that we could get it by an interlibrary loan. So any listeners sure. out there who, who wants to read that, uh, definitely let us know and we'll see, bring it from another library to, uh, so you can read it. Great. I'm going to go faster. The other one is, is the, um, the autobiography of Buddy Walton. Buddy Walton was the famous hairdresser at the Chase Park Plaza. He and his partner um, were well-known in the St. Louis community. What's interesting is, of course, he never says in here about anything about his sexuality. He was, he was not closeted by any means. He was known as the hairdresser to the stars. He did first ladies and queens and all kinds of queens, um, pun intended, um, in terms of their hairdos. But it's just interesting how a man lived somewhat of an open life. 
and never really hit it, but also didn't talk about it. And then another one, which I want to do a quick plug on is this is actually by a local author, William Stage. He was an RFT writer and it's called Creatures on Display. This is actually a fictional account of AIDS in St. Louis. And it's a very important read because it does have, I mean, there's some fake names in here and some fake places, but those of us who have lived in St. Louis in the gay community can read between the lines. Uh, he talks about how the AIDS um, crisis came into St. Louis and how AIDS spread through St. Louis in rapid fashion, um, using information from the city health department, et cetera. So it's also, although it's fiction, it really is based upon true factual information. And then we have two books that are brand new. Um, the first one is called Farm Boy, City Girl. And it's by Gene Dawson. Again, Farm Boy, City Girl. And it's an autobiography of, of, of Gene Dawson, who was, uh, again, from rural, rural, I'm not sure if it was St. Louis, Missouri, but he's from rural Midwest, came to St. Louis. And he talks about being a drag queen in the 1950s. And so it's a very interesting story about his life and journey. And then the next book is um, my, my friend, Terry Willits. He has written a book, which is called On the Outside. And, and it's a story of, on the outside, a story of female to male transition and therapy when you don't believe in therapy. And it's Terry's personal story of, of his transition. And so it's a great, um, very personal read. Terry's a great author and writer. So we want to encourage people to look up Terry's book. And then my shameless plug for my book, um, <laughs> hey, look here, um, again, I, I don't brag in terms of this is a very elementary orientation to some gay, gay history here in St. Louis. It's the minute it was published, it was obsolete. Um, we learned new stuff every day. And so um, it, it was a great first start. And there's some other um, great work being done here in the city and the region researching LGBTQI history. And so I'm glad just to be a part of the whole effort. Well, that's fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's quite amazing. It's quite a lot of great recommendations right there. That was a great list, Stephen. Uh, I'm trying to get all the titles and see if we can get them in the library. So at least hopefully we can get as many of those as possible uh, for patrons to check out. Great. How about yourself, Jigisha? Did you, would you like to go next? Sure. So I've got my two. So the first one is, it came out about a year ago. It's called The Book of Pride by Mason Funk. And this is a great book for someone who wants to learn about the civil rights movement of the 1960s from the LGBTQ perspective. So it captures the true story of LGBTQ and the civil rights movement in the 1960s. It has lots of interviews with so many different people that were, were part of it throughout the, um, from 1960 and to, throughout the present time. So it's sort of a, a great starting point to, to learn more about that. And then my yeah. second book is uh, Naturally Tan by Tan France. And he is one of, he is um, the host of Queer Eye show that's on Netflix now. And he's one of the first openly gay South Asian men out there. So his uh, book is a memoir about his life and how he came out at the age of 34 and met the love of his life. And he's married a, a boy from Utah a Mormon, actually. So it just goes through the story of, of how it came about for him. We don't often hear about gay South Asian men. So I think this is a great read to, to just read about his life. That sounds most interesting. Yes, and uh, both of those are available here in the library. So we have them in um, audio, overdrive, and physical books. Well, that makes it even easier. Yeah. <laughs> So for my two, uh, I went with titles, the one movie, one book that I've enjoyed this past year. 
and they are both kind of more young adult fiction themed. Uh, I enjoyed both quite a bit. The first one is Aristotle and Dante Discover the Secrets of the Universe uh, by Benjamin uh, Lear Staines. And it is a uh, is an award-winning young adult title about, about a young man, Ari Mendoza, who lives in El Paso, Texas during the 80s. And it's kind of a coming-of-age story uh, about figuring out identity and sexuality. It's a love story as much as it is a, a story about family relationships a big part of this book is Ari kind of coming now that he's getting older kind of coming understand his parents as being actual flawed human beings versus you know how we are when we're kids think of them as kind of uh, mythical creatures they deal with deals with the characters with a great amount of empathy there was a view that was written publishers weekly when it came out that as the end line of it that I quite liked so I wrote down here the book is a passionate reminder that love, whether romantical or familial, should be open, free, and without shame. And that is kind of the theme of the book. It won the Stonewall Book Award and the Lambda Literary Award. So it's a it's a really good one. I recommend that, that I'll read that one. The movie that I want to recommend is kind of in the same vein. It is Princess Sid. It is a lesser known movie uh, about a coming to age or coming of age story. It uh, Sid is a young woman who comes from tragedy, and she's spending the summer kind of researching colleges with her aunt in Chicago. Uh, she has not seen her aunt Miranda since for for many years. So they both kind of are strangers that are thrown together, and the aunt is played by Chicago native Becca Spence, and she's always usually a fantastic actress. And this movie is no exception in fact the the three main leads are fantastic jesse pennick plays sid malik white plays her love interest over the summer katie and uh, i've never seen uh, malik do anything else but she's fantastic in this film so definitely an actress to watch and it is it's a really nice film that there's not a lot of substance but it's but it's like a the two characters grow and you you're invested in there coming to age story and them learning a lot from the two two main characters the aunt and the, the young lady it's pretty good it's very interesting it is in some ways a lot in indie film uh, a lot of the extras some of their lines are incredibly painful but i would recommend it it's called princess sid nice nice i'll have to i've been meaning to watch that it's on my list so i will get to it one of these days <laughs> it's a yeah very gentle very heartwarming non-accusatory just basically allows the character to to investigate her identity and it's a lot of fun all right so steven it has been an age since we had you on the show uh is there anything that you would definitely like to plug today anything that the history project is up to that we should all be aware of well like the rest of the world we're going digital and virtual so we're doing a lot of work online and so a lot of our community partners that we work with are doing online activities. So the History Museum is doing several online programs that we're working with them on. I'm working with Pride St. Louis um, on doing a couple of virtual online um, lectures. We're to tape one tomorrow, so I'll make sure I afford that information to you. Um, we're looking at ways to, you know, because... In the past, we would go to Pride festivals and do displays and that sort of thing. And so we won't be doing that this year. So we're looking at ways to do on social media through our platforms on Facebook, Instagram, 
to post information and photos um, to push those out. So we're we're going virtual, um, like a lot of other folks. And um, of course, we're looking at real time history right now. So we're looking at how did the um, local community respond and deal with the COVID nineteen crisis, um, and collecting artifacts around that. Also interested in ensuring that the recent marches on racial injustice are being documented. There was a, a march last week, um, and there was a lot of really inform- really important things we want to archive for in terms of posters and banners that were related to not not um, not specifically Black Lives Matter, but also Black trans lives, because one of the issues that doesn't get as much coverage is the number of, of Black trans humans who are killed um, nationwide um, every year. And so there has been a, a great local movement here in St. Louis to uh, make sure that's brought to the forefront. So again, real-time history, you know, the minute it's over, it's history. So we want to make sure we're we're archiving and collecting artifacts from yesterday as well as 100 years ago. It's all history. So That's Very true. Nice. That's- How can people um, find you, <laughs> I guess, is the best way to do it? So is uh, or the website and so forth? Yeah, the website's easiest, which is stlouislgbthistory.com. It's easy to find us on social media, on St. Louis LGBT History, on Facebook, on Instagram. And you can, you know, dig in the rabbit hole and find us in the contact pages there. For this conversation, we have a very intensive review of local LGBTQA authors. So we can offer you information about, I mean, there's some amazing authors. We, we know the famous ones like um, our friends, um, Tennessee Williams and William Burroughs. But there's just so many amazing authors. The current um, St. Louis Poet Laureate is a lesbian um, poet. And so there's just amazing litany of amazing authors that we want to make sure people are aware of and they can then go forth and find more about them. So, Do you, do you have a moment that maybe tell us about a couple of those uh, authors? Well, you have everything from academic work, which, you know, Wash U, SLU have amazing academic authors. We have autobiographies, Keith Boykin. A lot of people know him nationally, but a lot of people don't know he was from St. Louis. And so some of his books talk about being from um, St. Louis, um, even though he left, I think when he was a teenager, we have books that are very um, specific about LGBTQIA life, but others are, are mainstream. And by mainstream, I mean the author happens to be gay, lesbian, by transgender, but the book is is not about queer topic per se. A lot of people know the famous authors from St. Louis that have been studied to death, Burroughs and Tennessee Williams, et cetera. But our list has poets. Um, we have mystery writers. It's just amazing the, the, the breadth of authors that we have here in St. Louis that either lived here at some point, have lived here all their lives, lived here for a hot minute, and left. A lot of folks, um, you know, left St. Louis and never came back. And in Tennessee Williams' case, um, we, the, the lore is he hated St. Louis, but he hated it enough to use it as a muse for most of his work. So we know that he probably isn't thrilled to be buried here, but that's where his um, brother ended up putting him. So it's important to understand, especially and the times we're in to understand our history. And one way to do that is to read a book and maybe not stay on social media. So get a book out and, and learn your history um, and learn some um, other perspectives. So I would encourage folks to research our list and to explore those authors. Certainly couldn't say it better myself. Read a book. Our guest for a recommendation section this week has been Stephen Brawley. 
He is the St. Louis LGBT History Project. He is the man behind it. And Stephen, thank you so much for joining us again. It, as always, has been a delight to speak with you. I enjoyed being here. Look forward to working with the library on an ongoing basis. Love being with you guys. Awesome. Thank you. 2020 marks the 50th anniversary of American Pride celebrations, and Jagish and I are extremely excited to welcome our special guest today. Dr. Eric Cervini is an award-winning, accomplished historian. His book, The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States, is now available. Dr. Cervini, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So to start off, just uh, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, well, I am originally from Central Texas. I grew up in a small town right outside of Austin called Round Rock uh, and was closeted throughout my entire life until, you know, all the way through college or all the way through high school, rather, and then came out right before college. Uh, and, you know, I thought that I was going to be a lawyer and maybe study government something along those lines. And then I realized after watching uh, the film Milk uh, about Harvey Milk in, in San Francisco uh, and just being shocked that I did not know his story. And it made me begin to wonder what other parts of the LGBTQ plus history I did not know and what other parts of, of our history that have been erased and not taught in high schools and in colleges. And so, you know, I was perusing the library database, the university database, I, I saw a name I didn't recognize, which was Dr. Frank Kameny. And historians have long identified him as uh, the grandfather of the gay rights movement, but there hadn't been a book written about him. And so I started digging around, realized that he had just passed away a couple years before that, bus down to uh, the, the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., uh, which holds his personal papers. And that was seven years ago. And now here we are. And this book <laughs> is, a, it's, it is about Frank, uh, but it's mostly about America in the 1960s and about the pre-Stonewall gay rights movement uh, and using his story and his experiences and his evolution uh, as a lens to really understand uh, everything else that was happening in the country, whether it was the Black Freedom Movement, women's liberation, the anti-war movement, I think it gives a, a really timely reminder of how activism and resistance works. Certainly something we need right now. Yes. And uh, yeah, I, with, to your point, this perfect segue into our next question, because I myself had never heard of Frank Kebney until mm -hmm. we, you know, started reading uh, The Deviant's War, and it is extremely illuminating, and it is definitely a tragedy that, yes. you know, that this is not being taught to everyone. Right. Uh, so, so could you tell us a little about who Frank Kameny was? Yeah, good question. So Frank Kameny was not born to be a gay activist. He was not born to be this, this crusader for, for queer liberation. He was born to be an astronomer. Uh, he realized at the age of six, uh, in growing up in the 1930s, that he wanted to study outer space. He wanted to study the stars. Uh, he ended up, after serving in World War II, uh, going to Harvard to get his PhD in astronomy and graduated in 1956, the year before the launch of Sputnik. And so, of course, there could not have been a better time in all of American history to be an astronomer uh, than at the height 
and the launch of the space race. So he was really positioned to be, you know, whether it was forming uh, NASA, which was in the process of, of, of being uh, established, he was more well-trained and well-equipped to, to perhaps even go to space or certainly at least design the mechanisms to get humans to space and to the moon eventually than anyone else. But unfortunately, the federal government found out that he was gay. And within weeks of them finding out this information, he was banned from working for the federal government and barred from receiving a security clearance, which meant he was barred from ever working in the astronomy or the space field ever again for the rest of his life. And what makes him so unique is even though so many other uh, federal employees were the victim of the gay purges, which were being carried out concurrently with uh, the, the Red Scare, historians call it the Lavender Scare, uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of federal employees were fired in the 50s, 60s and beyond. And Frank Kameny was the first to fight back. He was the first to take his case against uh, the Defense Department to the Supreme Court. Uh, he was the first to testify on behalf of gay rights in Congress, the first to pick it outside of the White House uh, in an organized demonstration for gay rights. And so he really is the grandfather of, of uh, the gay rights movement of today. Wow, I got to say, incredibly brave man to be able to do that at that time period. Mm -hmm. So one of the things you mentioned in your book was the Kameny Paper Project. And you said mm -hmm. when put together, it's a six, it was like a six-story high building. Yes. So did he, what was all, all the papers about? What was in the, what were the documents? Oh, that's a great question. I'm so, I love talking to librarians because they understand, uh, you know, the, the provenance of, you know, a, a book like this. It, it isn't just, you know, like it doesn't come from nowhere. It comes from someone's attic, right? It comes from their house and it comes from, you know, if you see photos, I, I considered including a photograph of Frank in his final years, which is actually quite sad in that, you know, he, I don't want to diagnose him as a hoarder, but he, he called himself a pack rat. So he kept all, quite literally every single letter that he ever sent or received, not to mention other documents, newspapers, uh, uh, magazines, anything. And by the time he was in his 80s, uh, they covered every single surface in his entire house and more. These were really all the documents that, that give us the secret history of the fight for gay rights in America, because so many people think that it started in 1969, right? Exactly yeah. 51 years ago with the Stonewall riots at the Stonewall Inn in, in Greenwich Village. And what I think the book shows is actually we have to start earlier, uh, not just with Frank Kameny, but also with the early homophile activism, as it was called at the time, that early gay rights uh, movement. Uh, it can be traced all the way back to 1950 in Los Angeles uh, in Harry Hay and the original Mattachine Society. And that's what I try to do with the book is, yes, it uses Frank Kameny and his experiences and his fight as, as a lens. It tells a larger story about activism in America in the 1960s. I think it was very, it was amazing that you were able to get all the original documents like that, you know, as a, you know, primary sources, I guess, is what I was just yeah. saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 And six stories. Is it just, you know, having seen our archives, that just boggles the mind. 
Right, right. I believe it is the largest individual collection of, of uh, LGBTQ plus activism. I, I could be wrong, but I believe it's, it, it's the largest. And it's just, it's incredible because, you know, my book ends in 1971. So it really covers about a decade in some of his earlier years. But that's just a decade. He kept working even after his, the organization he founded was called the Mattachine Society of Washington. That faded away in 1971. He continued fighting throughout his entire life until he died in 2011. So my book, it only covers a decade, but it's 500 pages long. Um, I like to think that it's a, a lot of that is end notes. I should warn people or, or, or reassure people so they don't have to worry too much. But the amount of material out there and the number of stories that still need to be told, whether it's from Frank's papers or some of the other secondary characters in the book, whether it's you know Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson who, who appear uh, uh, in 69 and 1970 within the pages of my book, they deserve their own books too. And that's what I really hope the book will do is encourage people, you don't have to have to have a PhD, you don't need to be trained in, in library science in order to go to an archive and do the research for yourself. And I think right now, you know, as we said at the beginning, studying our past and how persecution works and how oppression works um, and how to uh, most effectively fight back, I think that is more important than ever, ever before. Yes. Well said. <laughs> I couldn't say it better <laughs> myself. Well, to that to that end, I'd be providing perfect segues into the uh, next questions for myself. So, did Dr. Camney's work influence how Stonewall the Stonewall riot unfolded, or how the you know the LGBTQ plus uh, civil rights movement began? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the themes that I try to portray in the book is that Frank. You know, and, and there has been, especially this month, there's been a lot of great discussion about, you know, how Stonewall was a riot and how also uh, trans people and especially people of color at the riots were, were instrumental. But I think that actually minimizes the role of especially the Black Freedom Movement, because what my book shows is that because the movement for gay rights did not just begin at Stonewall, if it began earlier, with, especially with Frank Kameny's fight, he was responsible for borrowing from the Black Freedom Movement every single step of the way for an entire decade leading up to Stonewall, whether it was uh, uh, looking at the Greensboro sit-ins in 1960 and how they were able to effectively reclaim morality for themselves and prove the immorality of the Southern racist segregationists. Frank Kameny did the exact same thing. He said, oh, the government wants to call homosexuals immoral? I'm going to prove that actually I'm the moral one and you, the government, are the immoral one. He did the same thing. Then you have 1963 with Bayard Rustin and his March on Washington where Martin Luther King declared, I have a dream. Frank Kameny was in that crowd of 200,000 people on the mall in Washington. And what happens immediately after that? The homosexuals in the Magazine Society of Washington begin marching. Uh, then Black is Beautiful became Gay is Good. It goes on and on and on how we were quite literally Xeroxing the Black Freedom Movement strategies, which they had proven were so effective, and then using it for our own gains. But also, if you look at the photographs of these early demonstrations that Frank Kameny organized, they were very white. 
They were very male dominated. Um, and I think that's something that we have to uh, examine. And I think we still need to tell their stories and respect their bravery and honor the courage. But we also need to call them out for some of the mistakes that they made. And one of those mistakes was, if you look at the photographs of the marchers, they're all wearing suits. The women are wearing dresses. And that was something that Frank Kameny mandated, that there was a dress code based on gender, that if you wanted to, to protest your government and fight for the rights of, of, of gay people in America, then you had to abide by gender norms. So then you have something like Stonewall happening, where it's the people who defied gender norms leading the crusade, leading the resistance, fighting back and putting their bodies on the line. That sent a message to everyone who didn't feel as if they had a place within the pre-existing homophile movement that actually, you know, the sexual uh, deviants or queer people were finally willing to fight. And it didn't matter if you even owned a suit or a dress or you were employed or unemployed. And that's why I like to say Stonewall, although it didn't start the gay rights movement, it changed it. Uh, and so it, it was a crucial event, but you have to understand the context and the years leading up to it as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Because one of the things you mentioned in the book was that they, after Stonewall, everyone sort of defined their homosexuality, their orientation different by their own story, as opposed mm -hmm. to Frank was. Frank was had a, had a sort of a definition set in a way. Right. And it was a very political uh, strategy. I mean, right. he, he, he would claim, if you were still around, that, you know, no, he didn't actually have anything against drag queens or against uh, people who are trans or anything like that. He simply would say, well, if we're fighting for employment rights and we want to be employed, we better look employable. And so it was very much uh, a, the strategy of respectability, which came with uh, unintended consequences, which I think was keeping the size of the movement really, really small. And that's why Stonewall, you know, the people who flooded into the homophile movement or the gay liberation movement, as it then became called, they weren't just sitting around in the early 1960s. They were fighting within other movements, including the anti-war movement, women's liberation. And then they saw at last there was a tangible event where they could point to you and say, oh, at last, here is an outlet where we can direct our energies towards a larger revolution. And so that's when you start to see like the Gay Liberation Front and then the Gay Activist Alliance and other organizations like that. Yeah. One of the other things you mentioned in the book was that after World War II, homosexual arrests were happening every 10 minutes each hour. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. what was the government's sort of, I guess, mindset and, and why were they sort of chasing after homosexuals? That's a great question. I think it, it depends whom you ask. So for the government, it was a very, and legally, according to statute and an executive order signed by President Eisenhower, it was simply a matter of morality. If you were a sexual deviant, if you were not a straight person, if you're a homosexual, then you were by definition immoral. And on top of that, the government believed that if you were gay, then by definition, you were also going to be secretive. And so their public reasoning, what they told you know, America and what Americans supposedly believed, was that if you were gay and you were then necessarily secretive about it, then that meant that you were susceptible to being blackmailed in the middle of the Cold War, remember, mm -hmm. uh, by Soviet agents. Because the Soviets, in theory, could say 
oh, we found out you're gay. Uh, now we're going to tell your family and we're going to tell your employer unless you give us these classified documents. The problem is the government had no evidence that that ever happened. There was just absolutely no proof that this was an actual problem. So it gave them the cover to really just create a political enemy, right? Uh, Joseph McCarthy only went after communists because it was a convenient tool against the Truman administration. Very similar phenomenon with uh, sexual deviance within the government. And so that was what Frank Kameny in constructing his fight and especially his Supreme Court brief in 1961, he was the one to say, well, you're calling me immoral and secretive. Well, I'm going to prove that that's arbitrary and unconstitutional by making the logical opposite argument, which is equally arbitrary. And he claims that to be gay is actually a moral good. And he did so openly with his real name. He could have been anonymous V. Brucker in the lawsuit, but he was Kameny versus Brucker, the secretary of the army. And so that's why I argue that that Supreme Court brief uh, uh, 60 years ago was one of the earliest iterations of pride as we know it and as we celebrate each and every gym. That's amazing. I hadn't even considered yes. in that per perspective. So the, the way he put it together, that's very poetic. So one of the things I noticed was Alan Turing kind of went through something similar to Frank mm -hmm. and he had very. broke the Enigma code and then the government, the British government just sort of threw him aside and he's this brilliant mathematician and same thing with Frank Kameny. I mean, these guys mm -hmm. are brilliant people that could have helped even further. You know, Frank Kameny's contribution to the space race was just going right. to totally not be known. Right. Absolutely. And it's, it's a great comparison. I think they're both equally brilliant and also enigmatic. They're very uh, <laughs> uh, complex and, and eccentric characters. And Frank Kameny, if, you know, I would encourage anyone listening to, you know, look him up on YouTube and listen to him speak because you hear the words and the thought process of a genius. I mean, this guy was really, I think, and that's why I think Turing is such a great comparison because he, his brain operated at a level beyond anything that we, we can imagine. And I think it was that preoccupation, especially with logic and with the scientific method. And he was an atheist also that allowed him to say what the government is claiming and the rationale that it's providing to me and into the public for why gays should not be working for the government makes no sense. It is completely illogical. And so it became his life mission to prove the illogic of the government. And I don't think it could have been anyone other than a scientist who would have gotten there, who would have thought, you know, all the attorneys in the ACLU said, what, what are you talking about? Gay rights isn't a valid civil liberties issue. They're, they don't even constitute an oppressed minority. But Frank Kameny was the one to say, well, let's look at the definition of what is a minority and I will prove to you and spend hours and hours lecturing you on, on that fact. Um, so uh, I, I, we really do have him to thank and also yet another scientist to thank for really inventing what we now know as pride. Powerful and important, definitely. Mm -hmm. Uh, so this is one of our favorite questions to ask of our guests. Uh, being librarians, well, we'd love to talk about books. So would you share with us what you're reading right now or something that we Ooh. should be reading? Ooh, that's very cool. So I have, I think I'm, 
Oh, actually, I, I'm not allowed to say. Okay, I'm reading. I'm reading. <laughs> oh, no, I just, please, by all means. <laughs> you know, you can say whatever you want, doctor. Uh, I, no, I was like, wait, do I, am I allowed to say that? I'm reading a book that hasn't come out yet that I'm very excited about. Um, and so more on that soon. Stay tuned. Um, uh, you can follow my own podcast. It's called The Deviant's World. Maybe I'll, I'll, I'll talk about it then. Um, I've been reading a lot of James Baldwin. I think Baldwin this month in particular, he was a gay black man, uh, very active in, in the black freedom movement, but also published one of my uh, favorite books of all time. I, I try to return to Giovanni's room every year because it is uh, such a crucial exploration written in 1956 about what it meant uh, to fall in love as a gay man uh, in, in, in the 1950s. And this was also a gay black man writing this story and really creating history with it. And so I've been uh, uh, kind of thumbing through it before going to bed, uh, especially this month. That's really nice and a great read for this time period. Tell us, you said, you just said you had a, you have a podcast. So tell us about your podcast. Oh, sure. Um, so it is called The Deviant's World. And, you know, I, I'm a historian of LGBTQ plus uh, uh, culture and politics. And one thing that that is kind of the unintended side effect of that is that I probably know more about the gay world of the past than I do of the present. And so I thought it would be kind of fun to explore different parts of the LGBTQ plus community uh, now. So looking at different parts of it, whether it's, you know, lesbian bars in Los Angeles or the lack thereof, uh, looking at the, the history of circuit parties um, and talking to people who uh, are on the ground in those communities or in those battles right now. And then also looking at the history of it and tracing it backwards. The problem is <laughs> I, I started the podcast right before uh, the pandemic really hit. And so then it kind of turned into a, a more of an interview based show where I talked to, especially um, uh, writers and, and authors of other, uh, especially fiction, because I think right now um, we all want to escape <laughs> and in the best way to escape of course is, is through fiction and kind of leave the craziness of the current world for something slightly more inspiring. Oh, very. I agree. <laughs> I, I definitely needed it this time period. Amen. Amen. My gosh. So we're pretty much at the end of the questions that we had set up, but if there was something that you wanted to talk about or plug, or we just want to edit, by all means, uh, we can certainly bring that up. Sure. I think the only thing I would add, maybe re-emphasize is if there's anything that I hope people take away from my book, and it's called The Deviant's War, uh, The Homosexual versus the United States of America, even though it's about the gay rights movement in the early years, I hope people take away from it with the understanding that it wasn't just about Stonewall. It, and that being led by trans people of color, it was the entirety of pride and the entirety of the gay rights movement that was borrowed from the black freedom movement. And we have our gay rights today because of trans women of color, uh, especially. And so I hope, and I would urge people who are hoping to be an ally or who are a part of the LGBTQ plus community during this, this pride month, this June, um, to recognize that we have a moral obligation to be joining in the fight and in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and Black Trans Lives Matter uh, because uh, history shows that it's those with the least to lose 
who, who fight for us first. And it's those same people who are the first to be forgotten. Um, so I would urge anyone listening to, to contribute, especially uh, to organizations that are protecting black trans lives, including uh, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute and also the Sylvia Rivera Law Center are two incredible organizations that have been doing the work for so many years. And now uh, it's up to us to support them. Fantastic. So today's guest was Dr. Eric Cervini. His book, The Deviant's War, is available through your Kirkwood Public Library and wherever good books are sold. Uh, we could not recommend this insightful, powerful work more. So please go out, check it out, read it. Uh, it was an absolute pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you so much for joining us and happy Pride. Happy Pride and thank you so much for having me. So thank you so much for joining us on this very important episode, Kirkwood. We hope you enjoyed it. As we go out, both Jagish and I want to wish everybody happy Pride. And not just for June. Gay is good. Let's just celebrate all year round.